As you are taking your seats, feel free to grab the Bible that's there in the pew or the Bible that you brought with you and turn to Genesis chapter 37. And while you're opening up your Bibles there, if you haven't been with us in a couple of weeks or if you forgot somewhere along the way, we are in week three of a year-long study of the entire Bible using a book called The Story. And if you haven't picked up a copy, I think we still have some copies available. I don't, do we, Betty, do we have copies available? Yes, four copies available. We can order more. Looks like this. And the story is a condensed version of the Bible organized in 31 chapters or stories. It is scripture arranged chronologically with a few editorial comments to tie all the stories together. It is not a replacement for your Bible. It's maybe an easier way for you to read the whole Bible. And what we're doing is we're reading one chapter of the story each week and then studying it in depth through the sermon on Sunday, like today, and then going even deeper in our small group setting on Wednesday nights. And if you haven't participated in Wednesday nights, six o'clock, come for dinner. It's always good. It's free. Come, we eat together before we split up. The children go to a program. Junior high goes to J-Hub. And then the rest of us as adults, we here have some teaching, We have some time in small group, and then you get some Q&A with Pastor John and I, and that's been a rich time so far. You can go even further than that by diving into the specific scriptural passages that are being covered by each chapter of the story, which you can find through our daily Bible reading plan that we've set up as well. Why are we doing this? Why are we going through this all year long? The goal is to better understand and appreciate how the Bible speaks into and applies to our lives today. The goal is to become better acquainted with the story, God's story, which is the story of all of us. For, you know, many of us have read parts of the Bible, but to appreciate the whole of God's story and our story. And part of why we want to appreciate and better understand it is this is the story we've been commissioned to share with others. When we point people to this God and Jesus Christ, this is the story we need to know and understand in order to tell others about it. So we're three weeks in. Two weeks in the books. What have we learned so far? Well, if you haven't been with us, or if you forgot, we've learned a couple of things. After a promising start and a devastating fall, in the aftermath of a worldwide cleansing flood, and despite the lingering and highly infectious stain of human rebellion or sin, God reveals powerfully in the first couple of chapters, first 11 chapters of Genesis, he really wants to be in relationship with us. He really wants to be in relationship with us. He wants to save us from ourselves and bring us back home to him, our father. And last week, we witnessed how God begins to work out this plan, this plan to bring us back. And we learned about how God seeks to initiate this plan of salvation, redemption, through one man named Abraham. Through Abraham, we learned that God covenants to forge a new, a great, and enduring nation. And through this nation, later to be called Israel, God promises to rescue and bless all nations. The ultimate vision that God has is to create a new, peaceful, just, and righteous world. And what we, last week, as we just got into the starting of the unfolding of that plan, we marveled together at how through the repeated failures of three generations, it begins with Abraham, continues through Isaac, and then goes on to Jacob. And we looked at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we marveled through their repeated failures, God remained persistently faithful to them and to his broader plan and promise for the world. 
And this is going to be a, a trend that we're going to see continue. And you may ask yourself sometimes, why do we need to know about these people? Why do we care? Because these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the rest are our spiritual ancestors. As we talked about last week, we see in them ordinary people like you and me whose lives are dramatically changed and powerfully used because of an extraordinary God. Their encounters with God help us to know more about ourselves, to be reminded that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, something that began before we came into the picture and something we get to be a part of for eternity. Through each of them, we get to see how God's faith in us kindles our faith in him, our potential and power to say yes to what he is doing in and through our lives. And we are near the end of the book of Genesis this week, and we couldn't be at a better place because perhaps no other story this side of the Old Testament brings the truth of all that we've learned so far out than the story of Joseph, recorded in chapters 36 through 50, and that's what we're covering today, chapter 3 in the story. Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and towards the end of his life, God changed his father Jacob's name to Israel. The 12 tribes from which the nation of Israel will emerge come from the 12 sons of Jacob, one of which was Joseph. We've learned so far that God wants to be in relationship with us, but the story of Joseph's life, longer than any other story in Genesis, little sidebar there, really fascinating. We talk of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet the story of Joseph in Genesis is longer than the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's some significance in that. There's a reason for that. Because the story of Joseph's life shows us that, yes, God wants to be in a relationship with us, but it shows us that being in a relationship with God isn't always easy. The journey of faith isn't always smooth or straightforward. Saying yes to God, trusting God, following God can be tough when life, when the world around us seems to be saying no to us. The story of Joseph's life reflects how being a part of God's dream for the world can sometimes feel, can sometimes seem like a nightmare. Let's get a little sampling of Genesis 37 through 50. If you have your Bible open to chapter 37, I'm going to read the beginning of this story, just excerpts, 3 through 12, and then I'm going to skip down to verses 17 through 20. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told, to, told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come down and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. 
Very well, he replied, skipping down to verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's not really a promising start, is it? And if you're not familiar with this story, it only gets worse before it gets better. For us to, to appreciate the significance of this story, again, the longest story of a person that we have in the book of Genesis, we need to step back and sort of review the whole of his journey. So if you've read chapter 3 in the story, this is a bit of review. If you haven't, this is setting you up. And if you have no idea of the story of Joseph at all, you're going to know it by the time I'm done. Joseph, once again, to put some context on this, is one of 13 children, 12 sons, one daughter. He is the firstborn of Jacob's fourth wife. In fact, the only one he truly loved, Rachel. Rachel has died giving birth to the last of Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. And in her absence, what we read is Jacob comes to love Joseph more than any of his other children, a fact that he eventually declares publicly before the entire family by giving Joseph a special ornate, you heard, maybe you could think multicolored, or if you're familiar with the musical that this, is, that this story is based on, uh, or that is based on this story, a technicolored, he has this amazing coat made for Joseph. And little sidebar is Jacob, his father, probably learned to play favorites with his children from his mom and dad. Because if you forgot from last week, it was Jacob's parents, Isaac and Rebekah, who continued and contributed to the rivalry of Jacob and Esau by sort of pitting them against each other. When we come upon Joseph, he's 17. He's 17, and at that time, he doesn't just boast having a fancy coat or favored status with his dad. He's actually starting to have favorable dreams about rising above his brothers, of his entire family bowing down before him. And apparently for Joseph, believing that sharing is caring, he reveals his dreams to his brothers. But none of them really care for his visions of grandeur. Once they only hated Joseph, now they want to kill him. And the moment they get Joseph alone, as you heard, that's just what they purpose to do. And this is where we stop reading, and so I'm going to continue on and give you the rest. It occurs to them, though, in that moment, why murder someone who you can profit from? And so they sell Joseph into slavery instead. They wave goodbye and good riddance as he is carted off to Egypt. Joseph becomes a slave in Egypt. He, in fact, becomes the property of Potiphar, a high military and government official. And it doesn't take long for things to start, of, start sort of looking up for Joseph as his work and his success get noticed, and he eventually becomes put in charge of Potiphar's entire household and affairs. Unfortunately, Joseph is looking so good, he catches the eye of Potiphar's wife. But she wants more than Joseph's good service to her household. She wants Joseph to service her. Joseph repeatedly refuses her advances to the point where his repeated refusal leads him to getting set up as Potiphar's wife, scorned, falsely accuses Joseph of taking advantage of her. Potiphar, ever the jealous, enraged, and frankly clueless husband, locks Joseph away in prison and throws away the key. And just like that, Joseph goes from being on the fast track, enjoying the view from the top, to hitting rock bottom and finding himself seemingly on the road to nowhere. While he's doing hard time, Joseph's work ethic 
and Golden Touch once more draw attention. Catching the eye of the warden, Joseph soon finds himself chief among the incarcerated as he oversees all the inmates and the affairs of the whole prison. And at the same time, Joseph's reputation as an interpreter of dreams begins to make the rounds until he eventually comes to the aid of two of Pharaoh's court officials. His efforts on their behalf are fruitful, but just as quickly as he helps them, he is sadly forgotten by them until two years later when the king of Egypt himself starts to have trouble sleeping. He's being kept awake by dreams of his own, this repeated vision he cannot understand and no one else can either until Joseph gets the nod. Joseph gets the referral. Joseph gets the recommendation, comes before Pharaoh and clears up the mystery. Giving all the glory to God for what he knows, Joseph foretells of both feast and famine, seven years of each, first the good, then the bad. Not surprisingly, the king of Egypt wants this God and this guy he apparently speaks through on his side. And so Joseph, who always had this habit of becoming the number two guy, as if everything up to now was leading up to this moment, suddenly becomes second only to Pharaoh, ruling over the nation of Egypt. Joseph, the one who got sold out. Joseph, the one who got set up. Joseph, the one who was left for dead to rot in prison, begins to see his God-given dream come full circle as he is now the man in charge, the man with a plan. Joseph's dream is materializing, but it's not realized yet. Because meanwhile, back in Canaan, widespread famine is bringing together a family reunion as Joseph's brothers head up to Egypt for relief. As they bow down before him, none of them, however, recognize their younger brother done good. The dreamer whose dreams have come true. Joseph, for his part, bides his time. He's, check, he's checking them out. He asks about their family and their father. He tests their loyalty until he finally breaks down and cries out with joy. And more importantly, forgiveness. Once again, giving all the glory to God, Joseph declares, God knew what he was doing through all this, even if you, my brothers, didn't. And a family divided becomes a family reunited. Jacob dies seeing all his children reconciled and he blesses them for what looks to be, for now, a fruitful time of cultivating the land. Now for many of us, we think that's where the story ends, but that's not the end of Joseph's dreams. If you go to the very end of the book of Genesis, chap chapter 50, Joseph on his deathbed has one final dream, one final vision that he shares. And it's this vision of the exodus of his people. One day his descendants will leave Egypt and go back to the land long promised to Abraham. But the realization of that dream is for next time. For now, that's the story of Joseph. And if you know it at all or hearing it now for the first time, it's a happy ending, but it's not a smooth ride. And what I want you to see this morning it is, that, is that this story is more than a slice of one man or one family's journey. This section of the story offers three insights into our relationship with God. This section of the story, Joseph's life, reveals for us three insights into how being a part of God's dream, we can be a part of God's dream when, it, when we feel like our life is a nightmare. Of how we can say yes to God's plan when the world around us keeps saying no. 
So three insights that I want you to take away this morning. The first thing we learn from Joseph's story is there are things in life that are outside of our control. There are things in life that are outside of our control. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Yet, even though we all know this, deep down we know there are things in life outside of our control. Even though we know this, we always seem to be surprised when we get confronted with this truth, don't we? We all know it, but when we suddenly hit the realization of it, when it actually becomes tangible in our life, we all are shocked and surprised. We're outraged. But there are things in life we see through the story of Joseph that are outside of our control. Joseph had no control over the family he was born into. He had no control over the favoritism his father showed him or the hatred it provoked in his brothers. Joseph had no control over being thrown into a pit or being sold into slavery. He had no control over being set up, falsely accused, and thrown into prison. Joseph had no control over being forgotten by those he came through for. We can't always choose the circumstances or experiences in which we find ourselves. Many of us here today know this. Many of us here today know what it's like to find yourself in a pit, to slip and fall from a secure position, to get pushed down a hole by another person, cast aside or left by the side of the road by someone close to us. Some of us here know what it's like to be a slave, sold out to our own desires or someone else's, without the control of oneself, a slave, if nothing else, to addiction. And I'm sure that there's more than a few of us here today who know what it's like to be in prison. Not just physically locked up, and that's not just that, but mentally, emotionally, or spiritually bound, held against our will by abuse or injustice. There are things in life that are outside of our control. And sometimes we are like Joseph, and sometimes these things are done unto us. But also what we see in the story of Joseph is sometimes it is also what we do to ourselves. The pits we dig ourselves into, the slavery we sell ourselves out for, the prisons that have bars of our own making. We couldn't help ourselves. We didn't know any better. We didn't see it coming. We couldn't have known. And I'm not just saying these out as excuses. These aren't meant to be examples of excuses. Sometimes there are things in life we're just not ready for. Circumstances we couldn't have anticipated. Situations that are truly out of our control. Two quick examples from Joseph's life that aren't so much about things done unto him, but things he does unto himself. He shared his dreams with his brothers and the rest of the family. That's example number one. He shared them twice. Did you like pause at this moment? He shares his dreams the first time and he doesn't get, shall we say, a neutral reaction, right? And he has another dream and says, well, I'll just share again. Not a smart move. Joseph's dreams generated more enthusiasm than wisdom. But then again, he was just 17, right? Do you remember when you were 17? Some of you may be in this room 17. He was immature. He didn't know any better. It happens. The second example I'm going to give you from Joseph's life that wasn't necessarily done unto him is when he ran away from Potiphar's wife. And this is a real specific detail in this encounter. Potiphar's wife kept making advances at Joseph. He kept resisting. And finally, there's this moment when he gets, she gets him alone. And he gets the heck out of there and he leaves his cloak behind. She, give, she is given by Joseph the smoking gun to incriminate him. That's what she holds up to say, you see, he was trying to take advantage of me. Again, not really a smart move, but what did he know? He was just trying to get the heck out of there. It happens. 
there are things in life outside of our control. We see that in the story of Joseph. Sometimes there are things that are done unto us by others, and sometimes there are things we do unto ourselves because we just really don't know any better. We couldn't have anticipated. But what we also see in the story of Joseph is despite the fact that there are things in life outside of our control, despite how things look or what we go through, the second thing we see in the story of Joseph is God is in control of this life, our life. From the beginning to the end of Joseph's story, we see God working within the ups and downs, the twists and turns of Joseph's life. A phrase that you hear repeated throughout the narrative is this statement, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Even when life did not turn out the way he thought it would, Joseph discovered again and again he was not alone. Despite being in a distant land, far from home, far from his father, far from his family, Joseph repeatedly experienced God's presence in his life. It made no difference where he was or what was happening to him, whether he was in the pit or in the palace, whether he was in the prison or before the throne room of Egypt. God was with Joseph, empowering him, elevating his status, equipping him, giving him the ability to interpret dreams, and guiding him, ultimately leading him to Pharaoh. And I've said that slowly because if you remember back in Genesis 1, this is what God offers us in our relationship with him. This is what God promises. He, he offers us from the very beginning to empower us, to equip us, and to guide us. And this is what God delivers for Joseph. Despite all the bumps in the road, all the unexpected curves, God fulfilled. God made good on the dreams he gave to Joseph. God's dream for Joseph was deferred, but it was not ultimately denied. And the thing is, why I'm really teasing this out is because the story the life of Joseph is not an isolated story. It's not just about him as a solitary hero who attracts notoriety for his own exploits and the great happy ending. Joseph's story is the same kind of relationship the Lord seeks with us. Something that's established right from the start of the story of Joseph's life is that Joseph's dreams are God-given. Joseph's dreams are God-given. In other words, they aren't Joseph's dreams, his vision, his will, his purpose for his life. They are God's dreams for Joseph. In fact, they are God's dreams for all of us. Because the life of Joseph, it's so easy because it's such a rich and fascinating and intriguing story to get just fixated on the life of Joseph. But don't forget the broader story we're looking at. The life of Joseph serves the larger purpose of showing how God fulfills his covenant plan made to Abraham and to all of us. In Joseph's life, I don't know if you've ever caught this before, in Joseph's life, the path that he takes in order to become the savior of the nations, when he gets an Egyptian name, that's literally what it means, savior of the nations. But in Joseph's life, as we watch the path he takes in order to become savior of the nations of Egypt and Canaan and the surrounding ones, in that path, we actually see in this story more clues about the wounded victor of Genesis 3. And if you haven't been with us, when everything falls apart from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, it's one verse, God begins to give a hint of how he's going to redeem everything, the world in our lives. And it's this talk of a wounded victor, someone who will suffer, but someone who will ultimately conquer all that is holding us back, all that hinders us. And in the story of Joseph, we see even more clues about 
how things are going to transpire, how things are going to be revealed about this wounded victor. On the other side of this story, we know that to be Jesus. And what I'm saying to you is if you look at the story of Joseph and you put it up against the story of Jesus, you see amazing parallels between Joseph saving the nations and Jesus saving the world. Consider, both Joseph and Jesus were loved more by their father than they were by their brothers. Despised and rejected by their own, their own family planned a cruel death for them. Stripped of their robes, both Joseph and Jesus were sold out at the instigation of one of the twelve. And get ready for this. Judah is the brother who says, let's sell Joseph into slavery. The Greek word for Judah is Judas. And the price for both was measured in silver. The price for a slave. Both were believed to be dead, Joseph and Jesus, but were actually eventually exalted to the king's right hand. Both had exclusive control over the bread of life. Famine, bread of life. No one could be saved without bowing the knee to to them. And even though they weren't accepted, not even recognized by their own, both Joseph and Jesus forgave and loved their enemies. And brought God's blessing to the Gentiles, those outside the family of Abraham. Do you see that? Joseph's life, the fulfillment of God's dream for Joseph's life, was part of the unfolding of God's larger dream for the world. Gradually being revealed, ultimately being fulfilled through the coming of Jesus Christ. Beyond getting just excited about this for those of you who are really into the Bible, The larger point is, beloved, God has a dream for your life too. God has a dream for your life too. Through the Great Commission, Jesus has shared that dream with you and me. And the dream is to go out into the world and reflect the love and grace of God's kingdom to share the story, God's story, God's dream for all creation, for our redemption, salvation, wholeness and goodness, and to make disciples who follow and live out that dream. And like Joseph, God is working to fulfill that dream through the particularity of your life and mine. God is working in and through the circumstances and experiences, the things in your life that you cannot control to bring you through, to make his dream for you and for all the world come true. We need to hear that this morning. No matter what you're going through, no matter where you find yourself, no matter how difficult, challenging, or even devastating it all gets, God is with you and for you. Whether you feel wronged, abused, falsely accused, forgotten, or fill in your own blank, God is able to work his plan for your good. God's dream for your life will prevail. God will get you where he promises you will be. Death will not be the last word in your life. Your life will be made new, made whole and complete for eternity because God is in control, preserving his dream for the world. That's the gospel. 
That's the gospel, and we can all hear it, and some of us can get excited about it, others of us still kind of absorbing it, and yet even as we hear the gospel declared, not just in Genesis, but reverberating throughout the Bible until it culminates through the cross and the resurrection with Jesus Christ, even though we have the gospel put right before us, we still find ourselves coming back to that one nagging question. Why? The elephant in the room, the big question we just can't get past. In the middle of knowing what is out of our control, okay, we know it. And the truth, we believe it, that God is in control. We still cannot help but ask, why? Why did Joseph have to get nearly murdered, sold into slavery, falsely accused, thrown into prison, forgotten by someone he helped, and then, only then, see his dream come true? Why? Why do we experience struggle? Why do we experience suffering? Why disappointment, pain, even loss in our journey from where we are to where God promises we will be? Why? And I'm here to tell you this morning, there's no answer to the why. I would love to give you a sermon and say, let me tell you why. And I bet you've heard some sermons that have told you why. They don't know what they're talking about. I'm here to tell you. Because there is no answer to the why. We try to make a why, but there is no answer to the why. No one can, from our limited perspective can understand the why. And let's be honest, if you've even sat in on sermons or talks where people try to tell you why, if you're really honest, you don't walk away completely satisfied. You don't walk away going, oh, great. We do not have an answer to the why. There is no answer. God doesn't reveal the why. He doesn't. Interestingly, don't know if you noticed it in this story of Joseph, he never asks why. He never asks why. And if he did, and he may have, it's not recorded, and that's significant. It's significant because, my friends, it's not about the why. It's not about the why. The why won't get us anywhere. The why is a valid question. You're going to ask it whether I tell you to or not. You need to ask it. We all ask it. But the why cannot be answered and will not get us anywhere. And, and sort of a, a picture of that in this moment of just that, that, that why is for me in Genesis 42, chapter 42, just a little vignette I want to share with you. In, in the midst of everything we learn about Joseph, we all of a sudden go back to Canaan like I told you about in Genesis 42. And by the way, from the moment that Joseph's brothers do what they do, and there's just some crazy stuff if in the actual scriptural part of stuff that happens, it's just bad, ugly stuff. But by 42, the famine has hit them. And there's this incredible picture of where Jacob's family is starving. Jacob's still in mourning over Joseph. They're starving. There's this famine. They're dying. And they're literally just sitting around. And Jacob has this great line in the beginning of chapter 42 where he literally starts to talk to his sons and he says, why are you just looking at each other? And and for me, it's this picture of them all kind of going, why? Why'd this happen? What's Why? What's going on? And, and Jacob says, why are you looking at each other? Go! It's not about the why. It's about the how. The third and final thing we see from the story of Joseph is we control how we choose to respond to what we encounter, what we experience in this life. God is taking us somewhere. God is bringing us home We can't always control what we encounter or experience along the road, but we have the choice about how we respond, how we get there. 
even though we know God is ultimately in control, and he is working in and through the circumstances of our lives for good, that doesn't mean we just passively go through life and do nothing. And sometimes we've learned in the church, and it's wrong, this platitude of just saying, well, God is in control, so I'll just, you know, just kind of sit here. No! God is in control. God is working. But in the midst of God working and ultimately fulfilling what he has promised to do, our choices, our decisions matter. And God shows us the truth of this through Joseph's life. Joseph's life, his journey, demonstrates the reality and the significance of those choices at three critical and crucial moments. First, when Joseph initially encounters pain and disappointment in his life, can you imagine seeing the full extent of his brother's hatred, being thrown into a pit, we're going to kill you. Oh no, we got a better idea. We're going to make some money and sell you. And then being carted off to Egypt. Can you imagine that moment? In that moment of his pain and disappointment, Joseph could have chosen to throw in the towel, to give up or just give in to despair. But what we immediately see when Joseph arrives to Egypt is Joseph chose to say yes to God, to trust God. Though in bondage, let's not make light of his circumstance. He's a slave, not his own man. He's lost his freedom. He's in a foreign land. But Joseph chooses to serve Potiphar faithfully. He brought his best. That line I told you, the Lord was with Joseph and Potiphar noticed. When it says the Lord was with Joseph, it's not like Joseph had some halo or some cloud that followed him around, some aura, and, and Potiphar was like, wow, there's something. No, when, this idea of the Lord was with Joseph is tying into this idea that Joseph said yes to God, trusted God. He brought out his best. He represented God's presence. He reflected his confidence in the Lord so well that Potiphar noticed noticed that confidence, noticed that assurance, and he got promoted and was put in charge over the whole household of the top commander in Egypt. My friends, life almost never turns out the way we expect. Painful times, disappointments come to all of us. And when we face adversity or tragedy, we have a choice to make. We can give in to despair, or we can trust God and embrace hope. That doesn't mean we don't grieve. That doesn't mean we don't hurt. But we can choose in the midst of grieving and hurting to give in to despair or to trust God and embrace hope. We can become bitter or with God's help, we can become better. Joseph became better. That choice comes when we face pain and disappointment. But the second place we see where that choice comes is when we face temptation. Joseph faced temptation Joseph chose to say yes to God again by trusting him and saying no to Potiphar's wife. In that moment, again, keeping together everything that you know about Joseph's life up to that moment, Joseph could have tried to justify giving in to temptation, like many of us do, right? He could have felt sorry for himself about the way things turned out, that they didn't turn out the way he expected, and said, hey, what's wrong with having a little fun? He could have talked himself into it. He could have justified giving into temptation by giving into fear and convincing himself he needed to do whatever it took to keep this job. Man, I've seen a really bad stroke of things happening to me. I guess I better do whatever it takes or I'm going to make my situation worse. Joseph could have gone in that direction, but he chose to trust God. And this is important. Before, in the midst of his pain and disappointment, he chose to trust God and he ended up getting promoted over Potiphar's household. I don't want you to get this idea that saying yes to God always means, woo, great things are going to happen. Because in this example, Joseph chose to say yes to God and where did he end up? Prison. Ain't no prosperity gospel being preached here. 
Trusting God doesn't always mean we avoid temptation. Trusting God also doesn't mean we avoid the consequences of not giving in to temptation. We sometimes, when we say no in order to say yes to God, we are going to get slapped back. We are going to suffer. There's no way around that. But when we choose to trust God, when we say no to temptation, when we run from it, our character gets forged. We find strength, the strength that the Lord offers us. We find strength in the Lord to endure not just what is before us, but even greater challenges still to come. Though not causing them, God can and will use the trials we go through to help us to see and trust his power in desperate situations. But we have to say yes. We have to make the choice. And when we rely on that power, when we say yes, when we let his strength become ours, we allow God to equip us for the things he wants us to do that we're not yet ready to do. Joseph matured through his experiences. Joseph wasn't ready to be Pharaoh's deputy while back in Canaan with his brothers. Joseph wasn't ready to be Pharaoh's deputy even when he was second in command of Potiphar's house. And Joseph's maturity came about, it's seen in how he chose to respond to the circumstances that were put before him. Not only pain and disappointment, not only temptation, but the ultimate moment where we see Joseph's maturity in his relationship with God coming into the fullness of that relationship is when we see how he chose to respond to the power he was given. That choice comes in the midst of pain and disappointment. That choice comes in the midst of temptation. And that choice comes in how we respond to the power we are given. Think about it. Think about all that he's been through. Think about the journey to get there. The rejection, the suffering, the abuse, the, the neglect. And then boom, Joseph is handed the keys to the kingdom. Literally. He's got this supernatural ability to interpret dreams. He's got honor, power, and influence. And in that moment, he could use it or abuse it. Joseph could tell himself he earned it about darn time, finally, right? Joseph could have told himself he earned it. Joseph could have justified, well, it's my time to flex my muscles a little bit since I've been put down by the man. But what we see, not once, but twice, repeatedly, is Joseph, in that moment where he is given power, chose not to call attention to himself, but once again, he gives all the glory to God. He gives all the glory to God. When he is the one who interprets Pharaoh's dreams, he says, what I know, I know, because God has given this to me. And what's, what I think is so interesting is that when his power becomes personal, I mean, we can talk about power in sort of a general sense, but when his power becomes personal, what I mean by that is, yeah, it's all well and good, and I'm not making light of this in saying that, of exercising power to the glory of God in a, in a corporate big sense, but then his power gets personal when he gets reunited with his brothers. You get what I'm saying? Now the tables are turned, my friend. Now you are bowing down to me. And when Joseph could have chosen to use his authority to have his brothers tortured, executed, or just to just suffer a little bit, Joseph chose to be merciful and forgiving. He could have made them pay, but Joseph chose to act compassionately toward them. How do you wield your power? You have it. You may not think you do, but everyone's got some kind of power. 
How do you wield your power? Do you choose to give the glory to God or are you more about patting yourself on the back? How do you wield your influence? And I don't care who you are in this room, you have influence. You all have influence. How do you wield your influence? Do you use it to throw your weight around, settle some scores, maybe in your own family? Or are you choosing out of the power that God has given you, the influence that God has given you, to reflect his dream for the world. There are things in this life that are outside of our control. And despite how things look, despite what we go through, God is in control of this life, of our life. And we control how we choose to respond to what we encounter, what we experience in this life in light of that. Joseph's choices in the midst of his circumstances, think about them. Think about the choices that Joseph made in the midst of what God was doing. Joseph refused to violate a marriage. He aided a man's life. He helped the lost nation and ultimately saved not only his family, but the known world. By the grace of God, what will your choices be? By the grace of God, what will your choices be? What are your choices? I'm repeating myself. I said this week one, I said it week two, and I'm going to say it again because it's this important. Regardless of the particularity of your circumstances and lives and the choices that are before you, what we all need to understand is that choice is always the same. And it's the choice to say yes to God. Yes, God, I trust you. I follow you. I depend and rely on you. Or it's the choice to say, no, God, I don't trust you. I don't, will not follow you. I don't believe that you know what's best. The interesting thing is, our no to God often comes in those three different areas that we see in Joseph's life. Our no to God often comes in the midst of pain and disappointment, doesn't it? Our no to God often comes when we're facing temptation. And our no to God really comes when we suddenly get some power. Whatever the particularity of your life, it's the same choice from the very beginning all throughout, not only this story, but our story. The choice to say yes to God or the choice to say no. And that choice, that singular choice can make a life-changing difference in how we experience this journey, this relationship with God. It can make our lives better or worse. God's gonna do what God's gonna do. God's gonna bring us where he's gonna bring us. But we get to determine... <laughs> what that journey is like. We don't have to make the choice to say no. God has a plan. God is working that plan. God places a call upon our lives, a direction, a purpose, a dream for us that he promises to fulfill. And what you're gonna see again and again in the story is God fulfills his dream for the lives of the people he's encounters and for the world. He continues to fulfill his promises. We can hold on to that or we can re remain fixated on the why of our journey. We can remain fixated on the why of our journey or like Joseph, we can remain focused on the author of the story who will finish what he started. We don't have to remain a victim of our past. We don't have to be a prisoner in our present because God is in control. It's never too broken. It's never too late. Don't believe it. 
It's never too broken. It's never too late. There is no pit deeper than the love of God. There is no darkness greater than the light of Christ. There is no prison that can hold the freedom and power of the Holy Spirit. When the dream doesn't line up with the reality in front of us, we can choose to keep living the dream, God's dream for our life, for this world, or we can remain stuck in the nightmare. Either way, God's dream for your life for this world will come true. Our future is secure. Our destination is set. Beloved, it's our choice about how we get there. Amen.